Almighty God, we thank you for 2024. We recognize that you are the author of beginnings and ends. We recognize that it is because of you that we were able to open our eyes and see the sunrise each day. We are able to open our eyes and see the new year every year that we have lived by your grace. And by your grace, we want to continue to grow in sanctification. We want to grow in holiness. We want to mature in the faith. We pray, God, that we will be shaken out if we are in any place of stagnancy to a place now of motion as we will continue to see that, God, it is you that places things into motion. And so we offer up this time to you asking that you would ready our hearts for the Word of God to be planted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us turn to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the Word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'm going to do my best to finish this verse by today, but I'm going to do my best. It's all I can promise. Uh, The reason why I gave the sermons on the 31st that I did in the morning and in the evening is because I really wanted to start Genesis and hit the ground running. Uh, There's a tidbit that I thought you might find interesting. You might not see if there's any relevance here, but here it is. Um, They did a study on fast runners and slow runners, old runners. If 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 you know the phrase or the idiom, hit the ground running, what does that mean? A lot of you are runners here, so I thought you might enjoy this. What's the difference between runners? And why do some runners run faster than others? Is it because they move their legs quicker? And so the studies have found, and if you're a runner, you probably know this, studies have found that people move their legs actually at the same pace. So the switching of the left and right leg, doesn't matter if you're a pro athlete, an amateur runner, or even a 60-year-old lady. Once you hit maximum speed, the legs switch actually at the same rate. So what's the difference? What makes someone faster and what makes someone slower? And they have found that for the most part, it's because the faster runners hit the ground harder. And so when we say things like we want to hit the ground running, I really wanted to do exactly that. I wanted to hit the ground running. And last, uh, last week was more like an overture of a piece. If it's a, a long piece, an overture has a good overture at least, would have themes of the entire piece just kind of almost hidden throughout the overture. So you can kind of hear the major themes in the overture that you'll hear throughout the piece. So it's not, first of all, it's not not out of the ordinary for a pastor to take the first week of a sermon series and just give maybe an hour of context, even before he gets into the Word. But again, once... Once again, I really wanted to hit the ground running, so I gave a bunch of themes that we will see expounded in Genesis. 
before I even get into its content. And today, hopefully, we'll, we'll get into the content, but I really wanted to make sure that we have a good foundation of why we are doing this, what we are getting ourselves into, why it's so important. And I think these are important questions to ask, especially when we're going to go into study. And so, why Genesis? And why the first 11 chapters? Almost all of you who've grown up in the church know that when you start a Bible reading, you've probably read through Genesis. And Genesis seems almost as if it's split into different books, even inside the book of Genesis. It looks like it's at least two, maybe even three different books. You have the first 11 chapters, and then you have the story of Abraham. And if you really wanted to take another section out, it would probably be starting, when, uh, starting in Joseph's life. But it's at least split, and the first 11 chapters, while all these stories are brief, this narrative is different from the rest of Genesis, starting, when, starting from when Abraham is introduced. And I believe it's brief before reason. And I believe that there is a reason why we have to sit with certain things that are brief. Sometimes instruction is given to us in detail, and sometimes someone comes up to you and says one sentence. And that one sentence could have a very, very deep and profound impact on your life, doesn't it? I think Genesis 1 to 11 is like that. It's brief, but it's very, very deep and profound. You can't just pass by it, and we must sit with it. I also think that the reason why I wanted to do Genesis 1 through 11, the conviction at least that I've had as a pastor, is because I believe that these 11 chapters are the most challenged chapters in the Bible by the secular world. There are a hundred plus different ways that people challenge the first 11 chapters of this Bible. And you have to start wondering why. Why are we just challenging it? And why, are we, why, do not, why don't we believe what is being said in the Bible? And so before we even start, I wanted us to get ready. Because if you want to mine for gems properly, and then you find yourself in the wrong mine, then you would have to take your losses. You have to count your losses, get up out of the mine and go to the correct mine and then start digging there. Because as much as you've invested into the mine that you're digging, if you know that there are no gems, there are no precious stones in this mine, but you still keep on digging, then that's kind of foolishness, isn't it? And so for a lot of us, I do believe that we have been placed in the wrong mine, and I want to take us out. It is a barren mind. There's nothing in there. And sometimes to learn the things, to learn things properly, you have to unlearn things. And I see that in my life, even at my age, as I get older, I'm constantly unlearning things. Like uh, just a few years ago, post-COVID, some of the people, the members here in this church decided to give me as a birthday gift some golf lessons because I've never played golf in my life. Um, Maybe I went to the driving range once or twice, but I played baseball as a kid, so I would just swing it, uh, swing at the ball like it was a baseball. I'd smash that thing, but you know I would still play it like it was baseball. And then when these brothers and sisters here got me these golf lessons, 
I learned a lot of things, but I had to unlearn a lot of things. And if you know anything then about golf, then you know that the first thing that you probably learn is how to even grip a club. So I was gripping it wrong or incorrectly or not optimally. So they started to work on my grip. And for that first hour of that golf lesson, it was just on how to hold a club. That's all I did for, for the first hour. And so I get it. Unlearning things can be frustrating. It might take a while. And you might feel like I, I'm actually worse now because when I started to hit the ball with this new grip, I was, I was hitting it worse than I initially had. I was doing better with my baseball grip and just smashing it. Uh, it was inconsistent, but with this new grip, it was always going to the right. I mean, there was never a ball that was straight. But then some of the things that I see is sometimes it's okay to get worse before you get better. And so I am preparing you for the things that you might hear for the next couple of months on what Genesis is. And I hope that you're ready to listen, and I hope that the Lord will open our hearts. And so what is Genesis? What is Genesis? Well, Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch or the Torah, and the Torah is classically understood as the, the law. And so when ever, anyone ever refers to the law, they are almost, most, most likely, most often referencing the Pentateuch. And so the Pentateuch, or the first five books, the law, the Torah, is what we see referenced in the Bible as well when it comes to the book of Genesis and Exodus and so on, the first five books. And that is what we mean by Torah. So if you ever heard the word Torah, it means the law, and it means the first five books. And Genesis is the first book of the first five books. That's not the controversial part. Here, here we get into it. Who wrote Genesis? Who wrote the Pentateuch? Who wrote Genesis? For the past few hundred years, the Bible, and especially Genesis, has been severely attacked by skeptics, scholars, scientists, and many more of the like. And I'm telling you, especially the first 11 chapters. I want to dive into also why, the, why they probably did that, but what consequences it's had over our society in the last few hundred years. Now with archaeology, geology, cosmology, philosophy secularized, it's only a matter of time before theology is liberalized. Archaeology, geology, cosmology, philosophy, the sciences are secularized. It was only a matter of time before theology was liberalized. And one of the main attacks on the Bible in the past few hundred years is exactly the answer to this question. Who wrote Genesis? In the past few hundred years, the attack is against Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch. People don't want to believe that Moses wrote it. What was first then taught in seminaries have now reached our undergraduate level religion courses. Uh, you may not know this if you've graduated college for a long time, but perhaps you're a younger person, you, took, you went to college or undergrad recently, you wanted an easy A or something fun, so you decided to take a religion course. And 
in this religion course, it's taken now as absurd, absurd, not theorizing, but absurd that Moses would have written the Pentateuch or the Torah. Moses couldn't have written the Torah. Moses couldn't have written Genesis. Because, but then something happens. When you take something out, you need to replace it with something. You can't just take something out. You can't just take something out of the center and just leave it. When you take something out, you have to put something else in. When you decide to take God out, you have to put the golden calf in. And so what happened was that people started to come up with theories in the last few hundred years. And this is something that many of you may be familiar with, and that's why I want to address it. Because you grew up in church, you wanted the EZA, you took this religion course, and then you come back to me a lot of times, and you would say, my mind is blown. I had no idea that Moses didn't write Genesis. And I'm like, what? Okay. And also in seminary, this is what I had also learned. It's called the Documentary Hypothesis, otherwise known as JEDP. This is something that I've studied, something that Pastor Paul also has probably studied. And of course... Before you learn about JEDP or the docu- documentary hypothesis, you would have been primed by what we were really doing is textual criticism. It's a scholarship, obviously, that's really old. You look at variants in manuscripts and so on, the origins of documents and so forth. But you get primed, meaning that you won't actually go into the study of textual criticism, but you will just be given information on what the scholars have decided. And so starting from the 1600s all the way to the end of the 1800s, liberal scholars reached, eventually reached an agreement on the authorship of the Pentateuch, on who wrote Genesis, and they said it wasn't Moses. Again, the last few hundred years. It wasn't Moses. It couldn't have been. And they've decided it was basically four groups, and that's J-E-D-P. J is the Yahwists. And that was probably from 900 B.C. to 850 B.C. And then E is the Elohists, probably from 750 to 700 B.C. Then you have the Deuteronomists, which is 621, with Josiah's reforms. And then you have the priestly class putting their thing in. And that's where we get Leviticus, around 586 B.C. We take all these four manuscripts, and around 400 B.C., someone or some group decided to put all these together And that's how we have the Torah. And so I don't want to really get too much into it, but I want to get to the thinking about that. The thinking is that from seeing portions, they read read the Pentateuch, they read Genesis, they read Exodus, they read Leviticus, they read Numbers, they read Deuteronomy, and they found something. They're like, you know, this one portion, it says Yahweh. This other portion calls God Elohim, This other section says Yahweh and Elohim, and this other section has a bunch of priestly stuff that doesn't really relate to anything else. So there couldn't have been one writer who wrote it. It must have been many different writers who have written it over time. And what happened was they would write this portion, and later someone else would come and add this portion, and later someone else would come and add this portion. And then someone decided to put all these portions together And that's how you have your Bible, folks. And this is what they actually teach in almost every single undergraduate religion course today. Almost every single undergraduate course. Only there is actually zero evidence to back this up. 
no one has found any evidence or manuscript of J or E or D or P. No one has ever found it. What they saw was there, there's a different genre of writing. So you, you'll see in textual criticism, you see genres, and then you start to look at the kind of writing styles that's being done. And they're like, ah, this, this is a different writing style from the next, next uh, verse or chapter. So there must have been someone else who wrote that. That's how they, they see things. I've experienced this myself personally. Uh, when I was in seminary, I was actually, and some of you know this, I was actually accused of plagiarism as many voices in one paper as you put in this paper. There's too many voices, and this is, this is her language. There's too many voices. And so what they did was they put it up for board review. That means the president and the board of our seminary had to actually all had to read my paper. They went, they obviously they scanned it through a machine. They put it through the internet to see if I took anything, you know, lifted anything from someone and didn't give them credit Eventually, the dean and the president came to me, and they both apologized. They said, you didn't plagiarize. And then I went back to the professor, and then she said, you know, if you plagiarize, you could just tell me. You know, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just, you know, I just want to, I just want to know. It's like, I didn't plagiarize. In my head, I said, I'm just smarter than you, but I, I didn't say it out loud. But that's the point, isn't it? When you come to a place where you think that you are the pinnacle of understanding, you assume that everyone is dumber than you, especially I think this is a disease in the academic world. You have your PhD, I get it, you know, you're brilliant, but are you really smarter than everybody else? And so these academics got together, they assumed that they were smarter than Moses. So there was no way Moses could have written this. It's too smart, there's too many quote-unquote voices. And so now in the academic world, it's assumed that Moses didn't write it. What evidence do you have? No evidence. There's just different voices. And that's exactly how our academic world is playing out today as well. And I'm saying I experienced it myself, but I wouldn't be surprised if any one of you also experienced something similar. But who wrote Moses? How do we know? Does Moses say, before I write Genesis, I want to let you know, I, Moses, am writing this book. He obviously didn't say that. But all throughout the Bible, God credits Moses with writing the first five books. In Exodus, the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 17, 14, it says, write this memorial in a book so that it can be passed down. It goes to Numbers 33, 2. Write this, the starting places, the stages of my people. Write it down. He tells Moses to write things down. Even when we get to Joshua 1, 7, 8, it says that Moses' book, the law that I left Moses, I want you to keep this book and hold it. Don't depart from it. He tells Joshua that. Even in Joshua 8, 31, it says, the book of the law of Moses. And if you say of something, of Moses, if I said this is the book of Eugene, that means I am being credited with its authorship. So when, they, when the Bible says the book of the law of Moses or the book of Moses is crediting Moses with its authorship, it's not just the places I mentioned. I could continue on. It's all throughout the Old Testament. 1 Kings 2, 3, 2 Kings 14, 6, 1 Chronicles 22, 13, Ezra 6, 18, Nehemiah 13, 1, Daniel 9, 11, Malachi 4, 4, just for starters. And not only in the Old Testament does it gives Moses credit for the authorship of the Torah or the first five books. 
But more importantly, Jesus gives Moses credit for writing the Pentateuch. There are many, many verses that I won't go into, even more than what I recited in the Old Testament. But even in Matthew 8, 4, Jesus refers to circumcision as a gift that Moses commanded. How is that even possible if you understand your Bible? Circumcision was given to Abraham. Moses is way after Abraham, but Jesus goes, this is you. It's because Moses wrote that book. Mark 12, 26, Jesus calls it the book of Moses. Where, it says, where God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. One last one. Again, there are many more, and you can look this up yourself. But in Luke 24, 44, he says, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That means Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. That's the first five books. The prophets, that's all the prophetic writings, and the Psalms, which is pointing to all the wisdom writings, like the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so on. The, the Hebrew language actually has a word for that. It's called the Tanakh, right? So you have the Torah, you have the Nevi'im, and you have the Ketuvim. You would have studied this in seminary too, but Moses, prophets, and Psalms is all of the Old Testament. And Jesus, saying, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he says... He doesn't say Torah. He actually says the law of Moses, giving credit to Moses. Peter affirms this in Acts 3. Paul affirms this in all over his writings, calling it the law of Moses. Now, I am not saying that there are, there are not difficult portions in the Bible that's hard to understand. There are. There are difficult portions in the Bible that may be hard to understand, but what I am asking is, why is it then that our first assumption isn't then? If you don't understand something, our first thing that we do is, wow, I don't understand this. I need to expand my knowledge. I need to really look into it. Rather, these guys, rather than these guys who are saying, they must have been less intelligent than me, it couldn't have been them. It must have been a bunch of people. They assumed that the authors of the Bible couldn't have been smarter than them. Because varied and even smart, you must have plagiarized. You must have copied it from someone else is what you would say. It couldn't have been one man. There are too many voices. They could not believe that this was a supernatural work of God. Because, you know, we know better now. We know better. There are no supernatural works now. Science, you know, you say science. And so what happens then? What happens if you subscribe to this kind of theory, like the documentary hypothesis? Well, then you have to start to pick and choose which portions you want to believe and give credit to. That's exactly what has happened over the last few hundred years. That's exactly what has penetrated even all the way to the pulpits of our churches. And if that seems like, oh, that's an arbitrary process, no, actually it isn't. You have an agenda, and then you pick or unpick whatever will fit that agenda. Look at gender roles in the Bible and how many have completely rejected that notion, and they will pick and choose what they want to believe in the Bible. But the Bible will not let us do that. In Isaiah 47 to 8, 
the Lord says, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't difficult portions in the Bible that we must wrestle with, but I have personally found that it is a joyful venture to do this. In fact, one of the meanings of the word Israel is one who wrestles with God. Do you remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel and then that's where he changed his name to Israel? And one of the meanings of Israel is one who wrestles with God. We have to stop thinking. If we're going to start off well, we have to stop thinking we have God all figured out even before we get into the Word. So, let me go back. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses wrote Genesis. Why? Again, if you are teaching your child, I don't think it will be too simplistic to say that it's because the Bible says so. All this I say because I want to answer the question, how do you know Moses wrote it? With the answer, God said so. And that should be sufficient. So let's get to it. In the beginning, what is wrong with the world today? And I think it has a lot to do with not understanding this one word that the Bible starts with. And I said it's breshith or reshith. It means the beginning. The beginning. It means the start. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, if you look at the Bible in Hebrew, reshith is also, you know, it also can mean the highest or the best and it's translated as first fruits in places like Deuteronomy 18.4. Or if you look at Proverbs 3.9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all your produce. That's reshith. It means to give God all of your beginnings. It means to give God everything that is the highest in your life. It means to give God your best. And that's the word that the Bible starts with. Because if you don't have your beginnings right, you will inevitably end up in trouble. When you make something, you make it with a purpose. If someone else takes that something and uses it for something other than what it was intended to do, well, that's when we get into trouble a lot of times. You can take a hammer and you can say, I've created this hammer, I've invented this hammer, and its purpose is to hammer in nails. But instead of nails, you decide to hammer in someone's head. Then you have problems. You have problems. I saw a video of a man just last year in New York City. Uh, the cameras caught him. And it was an old lady walking down the stairs to the subway, and a man just goes up behind her, and he hits her in the head with a hammer. There's something wrong with that. No one goes, I guess he could have done that. That's a use, that's a use for a hammer. There's something wrong with that. 
So maybe when I say you will have problems if you don't understand its purpose, maybe the word problems is a little soft. You will have issues. I don't know. Is there a stronger word? You will die. How about that? What helps then? If you come up with a hammer and you have no idea what the hammer was made for, let's say you're in this world and a hammer just falls into your lap, what do you do with it? You have no idea and you realize that it could be dangerous. Well, it helps if you find the person that made the hammer, isn't it? Doesn't it? Ask him. Because no one does something without a purpose. Even if you say, I'm going to do this without a purpose, that's not true. There was a reason for you doing that. And that especially goes for God. And that's why we start with, in the beginning, God. That means before anything, God. God is the first cause. That is maybe more profound than I could ever really put weight in my intonation and tonality and my volume right now, physically. He is the first cause. We've perhaps heard these kinds of stories, these kinds of stories, or even experienced it ourselves when a child would continue to ask why. Well, this happened. Well, why? Well, this happened. Well, why? You know? Or where is this from? And then you tell them. So where's that from? And then you tell them. And eventually, if you go on with that line of questioning, you will get to God. And then you're asked, well, then who made God? And well, you can't answer that question, well, well, God made himself. That makes no sense. You can't make yourself. You can't cause yourself because something cannot come from nothing. And even the people who theorized the Big Bang started to realize this. And if you grew up in this you know, generation, then you were taught about the Big Bang. But the people who theorized and started to posit the Big Bang theory started to realize, hey, 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 this Big Bang theory actually doesn't make sense. And now we have these thinkers that hate the Big Bang theory, these physicists and these brilliant minds like Big Bang, I hate the, the Big Bang, like Stephen Hawking and whatnot. Because it doesn't matter how infinitesimally small a point of energy is, if anything exists, something must have caused it. The question is, what is the cause? When we see a ball in motion, let's say a ball is in the air and it's in motion, no one in the right mind would go, that's so interesting, the ball just started moving by itself, that's fantastic. No one would say that. The first question you would ask is, or you would think is, what made it move? Or who threw that ball? Where is it going? And questions like that. Because when you see a ball in motion, you understand that there, that's an effect. With an effect, there must have been a cause. And this is called the law of causality. Every effect must have a cause. An effect, by definition, is something that is caused. Therefore, anything that, that is in existence, that means for anything to exist, there must have been a cause. And it goes all the way back, just like the little kid is questioning his parent or her parent, all the way back then to the first cause. God is the uncaused cause or the primary cause. He is the reason why anything is anything at all. 
That's what the first three words of the Bible is saying. So when the child inevitably gets to God and asks, well, who caused or made God then? The answer is that God does not have a cause. He is not made because he is the ultimate maker. He is not created for he is the eternal creator and only God is the eternal creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When we recognize that God is the first and primary cause, we rightly attribute this characteristic to him and that's what it means to glorify him. We give him glory by doing that. When we say God is the creator it's a title of praise. It's saying that God is the first, God is the highest, and that God is the best. When you say God is creator, you are saying he is first, he is highest, and he is the best. So when you reverse that, you take an inversion of that, is then to believe in a lie. And that's what the world is doing today. It's Inver it's making an inversion of what is the truth. It says in Romans 1, and then this will all make sense what I said here. And this is why Paul ends this part talking about what I just said. So it'll make sense. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, again, Genesis doesn't start off with trying to prove God's existence. You know that God exists. They knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They didn't acknowledge him. And then I'm going to continue on. Let me just read it. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now you know why Paul wrote that there. It's because God is the Creator, He is the first. He is the highest. He is the best. And so this is about Genesis. And project, rejecting Genesis, rejecting the beginning, has its consequences. Maybe like you could believe in Genesis, you might not have to, as long as you believe in Jesus. That doesn't make any sense because the first words that we are given is in the beginning, God. All things are created by God. He is the name above all names. He is the highest. Anything else is creation. It's a created thing. You extol anything else above God then, that's what I mean by inversion. You're reversing the order because the highest thing, the first thing is God. So if you put anything above God, you are reversing that order. You are reversing the true order and how do we know all things are in existence because of God? When we, then we could say, look no further than Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One way to see this verse is then, God is the subject. Creation or the created part is the action. 
and the rest are just objects, whether it's a direct object or indirect object. So what did the subject act to the object? What did God create? Well, God created the heavens, that's space. He created earth, that's matter, and the beginning, that's time. So you have all of existence in one verse. All three objects of existence, space, matter, time, is in one verse, and who is the primary cause? It is God. God is the first cause of all. And if God is the creator of all, then he knows the purpose of all. Why does anything exist? Well, if you really want to know why anything exists, then you have to turn to verse 1. We must turn to God. Otherwise, our thinking becomes futile, our foolish hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise or smart or brilliant. You become fools because we exchange what is true and glorious with, we'll take the inverse of that. That's what we're seeing today. And so from the very beginning, we must get our beginning right. If the beginning is not right, nothing is right. And who knows the purpose of all existence? It's its creator. It's no wonder that people rage against God being creator. We want to make up whatever we can say to ridicule people who believe in God. We want to say it's foolish and infantile to say some big figure in the sky created it all, right? Why all the rage against God? Because once you acknowledge that it is God that created everything, then you acknowledge that he holds its purpose. The purpose of all creation is given by God. That's what we mean when we say all the heavens and the earth were meant or were made to glorify God. In Revelations 4, or Revelation 4, 11, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. By the way, it's no coincidence that right after Revelation 4, 11, it starts, the Lamb is introduced. Before we get to that, let me just go back a little bit again and say, the beginning being God, God creating everything for his purpose implies that after everything then, also God. The beginning, before the beginning is God, then after everything, God as well. Creation doesn't exist outside of God. So be, before creation, God, it's implied that after creation, God. God is the beginning and the end. In Isaiah 44, 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, we talked about this. I'm going to continue to move on. I'm going to layer it a little bit more. Notice how God identifies himself. He does so as the beginning and the creator, the beginning and end. He is the creator. There is no other God besides him. And he just doesn't say that, that he is any God. He says that he is our God. He is the God who establishes a covenant with his people. He is the God of his people. The creator God is the God of his people. And how is that solidified? It's solidified through his son, Jesus Christ, 
whom we worship. It's through Jesus Christ and only through him we have a covenant with the creator God. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Again, only God can be the first and last, the beginning and end. Everything else is false. It's an inversion. It's blasphemy. And God destroys blasphemers. Jesus, the lamb that follows directly after the praise given to God, being the creator, says in Revelation twenty-two thirteen. this is what Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is God. And Jesus is the one that we know that makes a covenant with us and God. We see this in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and I'll go skip to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. It's all concepts that we just went through. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, meaning Jesus Christ has come to us in the flesh. The beginning and the end came to us and made a covenant with His people. When we go through life and we see that there are things that we are not sure about, there are really dark times out there. We are not sure where this is going to go. If we continue down this path in this country, in the world, where will we end up? And some people can have anxiety about it, about your job, maybe on a personal level, about your, you know, your family on a more you know, broader level there, community, and we could go on from there as well. But when you understand the beginning, you understand it's God who makes a covenant with his people, and it's also God who keeps that covenant. It's God before time, space, and matter who said, before the foundations of the world were set, he said, I will make a people for myself. And he chooses his people. And he chooses his people in Jesus Christ. It's assured to us with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do you know God will hold you through anything even after space, matter, time. How do you know God will hold you? It's because he is creator God. And he makes a covenant, an eternal covenant. This is beyond time. He makes that covenant with his people. In the beginning was God. He is the first and last, the beginning and end, the alpha and the omega. God deserves the highest praise. And that's how the first verse of the first book of the word of God starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so may all the glory be to him forever, and may he be praised for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, the assurance that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are in you whether the storms or the tempest rages on in our lives, whether we see the end of things to come, or whether we are experiencing even small and new beginnings, we recognize that you are its ultimate author 
And now we offer you the highest praise by giving you our lives. May our lives be pleasing to you, O God. And may we, O Lord, be living sacrifices for how you have intended us, purposed us to live. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our lives to the Lord and offer up our devotion, our sacrifice, our first fruits, our highest to the God who deserves all the glory. Let's take this time to pray.